The text for our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 23, and again, as we've done before, we'll read selected verses from the chapter, and they will be up here on the overhead. Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once again. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. So Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows this. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they called that place the Rock of Escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds at Angedi. This time we'll call the kids to the front for their children's sermon. God loves his people so much that he wants to make sure they understand what Jesus does to save us. And that's why God has given his people many pictures of Jesus' life and work throughout all those hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Our story this morning shows David again as a picture for God's people of Jesus' life. When Jesus lived on earth. He traveled from place to place, preaching God's word and telling people the way to be saved from sin. Because the people did not accept him as the true king of God's people, he was forced to move from place to place. 
in our gospel reading a few minutes ago, Jesus said, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but I have nowhere to rest my head. That means that he had no place to call his own home. In the stories we read last week and today, we see David being let down out of a window to escape Saul. We see David hiding in mountains and forests and caves. Just like Jesus, even though David had been called to be king, people did not accept him as their king. And so he too had no place to rest his head. And now, just as he seems to have found a safe place to hide, a cave called Adullam, he hears that Israel's enemies... The Philistines had attacked a city called Keilah, and they were stealing all their food. David asks God if he should go and help them, and God tells him to go. So David and the soldiers who were with him go to Keilah, and they save the people from the evil Philistines. While David is there, Saul finds out that he's there and decides to come and capture him. And again, David asks God what to do. Should I run away again? Will these people that I've just saved hand me over to Saul? And God tells David to run away again. God tells him that if he stays in Keilah, these people will give him over to Saul. I mean, can you imagine that? After he saved them and their families from starvation, from the Philistines, they would still let Saul take him and kill him. It's just like what happened to Jesus. Many of the same people that Jesus healed and fed screamed for him to be killed. One of Jesus' own followers, a man named Judas, who had heard all of Jesus' sermons, had seen all of Jesus' miracles, sold Jesus to his enemies for 30 silver coins. But in our story, God protects David over and over again. And this is a great lesson for us. Because like David, we too are God's children. And so... Even though sometimes things are hard, God is always watching over us, protecting us. It was hard for David to live in the forest and in caves, but even though he had to suffer this, God was really protecting him from Saul. And at the end of the story, we read that the Philistines attacked Israel, and this makes Saul quit hunting for David so that he can go and fight them. And so God even used the evil Philistines to protect David because he was God's dear child. And we should always remember that we too are God's dear children and that he controls everything in order to protect us from evil. Sometimes we may have to endure some hard things, but these hard things are really part of the way that God is protecting us. We can always know that God is watching over us because he loves us. You can return to your seats after we pray. God, who did of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May the Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified this day in the preaching of his gospel. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake, amen. We've all had experiences that at the time 
were seemingly unbearable misery. But upon later reflection, we find excitement, maybe even pleasure in them. This period of David's life strikes me that way. There, there would have been many a tale of deprivation, disease, and discomfort on the one hand. But also, many a tale of daring raids, active conflicts, and hairbreadth escapes on the other hand. You can easily picture David being pushed to his mental limit most of the time and wishing for this trial to be over while he was enduring it. But you can also picture David fondly looking back on this period in the later years of his life. Now that brings us to our outline this morning and the doctrines that our text teaches. Number one, afflicted, anointed. Number two, God's omniscience. And number three, comfort in affliction. So our first point, David, God's anointed, has no place to lay his head. When we left David last week, he had found a relatively safe place to hunker down. Saul had never discovered his hiding place in Adullam. As David assesses his situation, he realizes that he has enemies on all sides. The smartest thing to do, if mere survival is your objective, is to stay put. And David is in a really tricky place, and I don't mean that physically. This is a tricky place as regards his actual status. He has not yet been crowned, but he has been forced to assume some of the responsibilities of royalty. And he has been now granted access to God's will by a priest. He has the beginnings of an army, but everyone outside his little circle pretty much wants him dead. Then comes word that the Philistines have attacked Keilah and raided the threshing floors. Now this would be kind of like if an invading army attacked your grain silos. The only difference is that in the economy of ancient Israel, the contents of the grain bins were strictly for local consumption. No one in Israel was selling grain to Assyria. Anything harvested in Keilah was consumed in Keilah. So when the Philistines raided their threshing floors, they were taking food right out of the mouths of the people of Keilah. Now David's, David's truest duty as king would have been to marshal an army, march on Keilah, and liberate it from the Philistines. But he isn't actually king yet. And so the question becomes, am I responsible as future king, or is this Saul's fight? If I go, can I expect God's blessing? And so David inquires of God twice. Now, because it's as if once David can settle down, even if it must be in a cave, He's rousted out of his place of security. Like his greater son, David has no place to lay his head. David was God's anointed. And during this whole period, he was engaged in the work of saving his people from their enemies. Nevertheless, their hearts were against him. The people sided with Saul, their king, like the kings of the nations. Against the Lord and against his anointed. Christ, throughout his entire ministry had no place to lay his head. He was opposed and persecuted by the very people who should have most welcomed him. They saw in him a threat to their works righteousness. And at the end of three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, many of the people sided with the Pharisees and priests against the Lord's anointed. A man like Judas Iscariot, who was the beneficiary of many wonderful scenes of Christ's life, a witness to many sermons and miracles, betrayed him 
like the men of Keilah had intended to do to David. In verse 16, we read that Jonathan snuck out to David's hiding place and, quote, strengthened his hand in God. A couple weeks ago, we saw how God sent Jonathan across David's path, just as his path was about to get extremely dark and dangerous. Here again, at a very critical juncture, when David's life is going to be put into danger multiple times, Jonathan is again sent by God's grace to strengthen David. Since David is a type of Christ, it shouldn't surprise us to find analogous situations in the life of our Lord. So, at the very beginning of our Lord's earthly ministry, at his baptism, the Father spoke spoke from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. As the Pharisees were plotting to kill Jesus after he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. And the Father answered with a voice from heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Just before Jesus went into Jerusalem for the final time on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father again spoke from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And finally, in something quite mirroring our text this morning, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, collapsed upon the ground in mental turmoil at the prospect of bearing God's infinite wrath against sin, we read in Luke 22, verse 43, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Isn't that like our text this morning? David is at his wit's end. He has been run ragged for many long months. The very people whom he has rescued from harm are willing to betray him. When he faces the prospect of a lot more time on the run and almost certain death, his angel-like friend, Jonathan, appears to strengthen him. I don't think we can overemphasize the importance of this visit. I want us to remember something. David has been anointed king. Yet, even after slaying Goliath and performing many other heroic feats for his people, he's living the life of a fugitive, no place to lay his head. Only a stone could be unmoved by such opposition. In fact, only a fool wouldn't stop to take stock of his life to ask whether or not God might be displeased with him. This is actually something that takes a great deal of wisdom. If God has called a person to some task or other, the path will be difficult and strewn with difficulties and trials. That's just absolutely normal. But it takes a great deal of wisdom to assess whether or not God has called the person to such a task or whether they merely think or wish that he has. And in that case, the difficulties in one's path are not trials of one's faith or tests of endurance. They are chastening for being stubborn and pig-headed. The heart is deceitful above all things, so this is a real danger. But in the case of David, as in the case of Christ, he was called, without question, to a task for the church. And because his faith had begun to wane, God reaffirms his favor and blessing upon David. And God does so by sending a messenger. Jonathan comes, and what does Jonathan say? Do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. And even my father Saul knows that. David's confidence in God's promise may be weakening under trial, but not Jonathan's. And isn't this just another example of Jonathan's profoundly gracious character? Think about it. 
He is the one slated by nature to be the next king. And yet not only does he harbor no hard feelings toward David or God, but he actively encourages David to confident trust in God's faithfulness. It's almost as if David, it is as if Jonathan treats the promise to David as his own. And that is a mark of true saving faith. We can actually see David's wavering in the fact that he inquires of God twice about saving Keilah, and then twice again about his safety in Keilah. In Luke 22, we read that an angel appeared from heaven and strengthened Jesus. Now, how did he strengthen him? Well, it wasn't by somehow magically imparting strength to him. No, it was the same way that Jonathan strengthened David. He strengthened his hand in God. How? In other words, the angel recited to Jesus the promises of God regarding the glorious outcome of his upcoming cross work. When Jesus takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, he is fully aware that Judas has gone to the leaders of the Jews to betray him to death. As he enters Gethsemane, Jesus tells his disciples, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. After which we read that an angel appeared from heaven and strengthened him. There is a mystery in the sufferings of Christ that defies description. On the one hand, the burning wrath of God against your sins and mine was so unrelentingly fierce that Christ cries out the words of Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's as if God the Father has turned away from his beloved Son. It's as if Christ cannot see or sense the satisfaction of his Father who declared, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. On the other hand, Never is Christ more pleasing to the Father than when He endures the infinite wrath of God, the just sentence for the sins of the elect. And this mystery is reflected in Psalm 22. In verse 1, Christ exclaims, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But in verse 24, Christ says of the Father, He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him, He heard. While David is living the life of a fugitive under a distinct sense of divine displeasure, he is in fact completely in favor with God. Now, this is a lesson that we learn from many places in Scripture, the book of Job being the prime example. God's favor is not always to be determined by external circumstances or by the absence of difficulties. Job's friends mistook his hardships for divine displeasure. And what none of them knew was that there was a lot going on behind the scenes of which they were incompetent judges. When Jesus was hanging upon the cross, the leaders of the Jews stood before him and mocked him with words from Psalm 22. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You see, the accusation was that God couldn't possibly be pleased with Jesus. Otherwise, he wouldn't subject him to such anguish. And I'm sure this is one of the reasons why Christ cried the words of Psalm 22. Look in the hymnal. 
And you'll notice that usually the title of the hymn is the first line. This was true for the Psalms. When Jesus cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was in effect saying, read the 22nd Psalm. Anyone present that day should have recognized it. Psalm 22 speaks of an innocent sufferer whose hands and feet are nailed, whose body is tortured beyond belief, yet no bone is broken, over whose clothes men cast lots, and who is mocked with the words, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. David's life as a fugitive, though anointed king, as an innocent sufferer, as one betrayed by trusted friends, as one hated without cause, is a picture to us of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to turn now to our second point and then make some practical observations about what these events mean for us personally. So secondly, God's omniscience. God's knowledge encompasses everything. God willed for David to escape Saul's grasp. God overruled the would-be treachery of the people of Keilah. Had they been given the opportunity, they would have betrayed David. And this non-event, God knew. Now, this fact of God's absolute omniscience is twisted by evil men who actually deny God's omniscience by way of a doctrine called middle knowledge. Proponents of this heresy claim that God has two forms of knowledge. First, he has what they call natural knowledge, which relates to the necessary states of affairs because these are what he intends to do. But they also claim that God has a knowledge of what free creatures would do in other circumstances should those actually ever come to pass. And this knowledge they call middle knowledge, and proponents of this heresy appeal to our scripture passage for support. Middle knowledge is often called Molinism, after its inventor, the Jesuit Counter-Reformation philosopher, Luis de Molina. Molina's obvious purpose was to try to refute or disprove the Reformed doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty. And in order to do this, Molina took a side road around sovereignty and attacked God's knowledge. Because, you see, the church's theologians have always biblically asserted that God knows all events that occur and that he cannot not know all things because he has ordained all things. Everything happens according to God's sovereign decree. How could God not know his own plans, right? So Molina attempted to circumvent this in order to give man the final say in the matter of his own salvation. He tried to find a way to say that God knows all things, but that man can do and actually does do things that God has not ordained. But saying this directly would be open blasphemy. By positing middle knowledge, Molina argued that God could possess knowledge not just about the actual world, but about, quote, all possible worlds. And there's nothing groundbreaking about that assertion. If God knows everything, then he knows everything. But Molina applied this assertion to say that there are things which God has willed to place outside of his direct sovereign and overruling power, which he has placed under man's free will. And since these things are not certain, God's knowledge of them is not the knowledge of decree, but rather the knowledge of what 
will occur under any variety of circumstances should a free agent choose this way or that way. Now, if you're scratching your head asking, what purpose does such an egghead idea serve? Molina is having his desired effect. This has long been Rome's way of teaching her doctrines. She shows you some impenetrable mystery, a Gordian knot, a philosophical quandary far beyond the ability of even an above-average intellect to solve, and says, the magisterium has solved this riddle for you. You don't need to think about any doctrinal issues. You don't need to ask any theological questions. As you can see, such matters are far too hard for you. Just accept what we say, and you'll be fine. This entire serpentine maze of Molinism serves only one purpose, one purpose, and that is to grant unto man the final say in the matter of his own salvation. On the surface, it looks like it glorifies God by claiming that God has such incredible powers of mind that he even knows the things that will never come to pass. But in reality, it's smuggling lies in the back door. And turning God into an intentionally ignorant ruler who is purposely willed to put parts of his own creation outside of his own knowledge and control. And to whose and into whose hands has he willed to place these things, pray tell? Why, man's, of course. No surprise there. When we read this event, what we should actually come away with is a deep, deep sense of humility. The people of Keilah did not, in fact, betray David. But had God not sovereignly overruled all things for the sake of His church, they would have. What that means for us is that we should humbly thank God always for His sovereign ruling of all things what he has kept us from. There is no depth of sin we would not sink into did God's providence not govern us. What kept the people of Keilah from committing treachery against God's anointed was not their inherent goodness, but rather the grace of God. Think of the worst historical person you can, say Stalin, Chairman Mao, or Jeffrey Dahmer. And ask yourself, could I have committed such evils? And the plain and obvious answer is, apart from the grace of God, you bet your boots. Absolutely, you could. God's omniscience, therefore, is a comfort to His children. Because it means that God does know all our sins. He knows every single sin you have ever committed, the things you are most ashamed of, the things you dread anyone else ever finding out. More than that, God knows, already knows, every sin you will commit from now to the end of your life. And what's more, He knows all the ones you would commit had He ordered events to occur differently than they have or will. And God has known all of this from eternity past, and He hates every one of those sins. When God ordained to create you for His own good pleasure, to create you unto salvation, He was fully aware of all your countless sins, all your rebellion against Him, and He loved you eternally in Christ. And not because you're so great and wonderful, 
but because he is. And that brings us to our third point. This is comfort for the afflicted. This should strengthen our hand in God. Now let's think about this from the perspective of our two previous points. Number one, isn't it edifying to observe all the ways that God protected David? First, when Saul ordered his men to kill David, God raised up Jonathan to take David's side. And by his wisdom, he temporarily halted Saul's murderous plots. Secondly, when Saul threw a spear at David, a quick move saved his life. Thirdly, his wife led him down through a window and he escaped. Fourthly, when the messengers, messengers were sent to arrest him, they were overpowered by God's spirit. And even Saul, when he attempted to do what they had failed to accomplish, underwent the same transformation. Fifthly, when he was in Keilah, he was warned of impending treachery and thus escaped. And now, sixthly, an escape is effected, so to speak, by a Philistine invasion. First Samuel teaches us this lesson over and over again, namely that God's promises stand sure. Whatever the temporary appearance of providence may suggest, God is faithful. God's ways are past finding out. We see here that, that wonderful diversity of plan which always characterizes the ways of God. We see the same thing in the history of the Old Testament church. At one time, he saved them by dividing the seas. At another time, the sun stands still. Gideon saves them with water pots and torches. Shamgar with a cattle prod. Samson rescues them with a the jawbone of a donkey. Jephthah with superior military planning. David with a sling and a stone. Daniel by the interpretation of dreams. This should serve as a great comfort to us in times of trial. Yeah, God has answered your prayers in such a way before. That doesn't mean that he'll come to your aid in the same way the next time. He has thousands of unseen methods to any of which he may resort. When to the eyes of sense, there seems to be not a shadow of hope. One of the reasons that God sends his children into what appears to be inevitable ruin is that he wants to call their faith to higher exercise. God wishes to teach us the sublime lesson, stand still and see the salvation of God. David, as God's anointed, had no place to lay his head. And in this, he teaches us that God keeps his promises despite appearances. And as Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24 say, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Secondly, our hands should be strengthened in God, in the knowledge of God's omniscient love for his children. Neither God nor David dealt with the men of Keilah as actual traitors. Had they been given the opportunity to betray David, they would have. God withheld from them the opportunity, and he also withheld from them the imputation of the guilt of treason. There is no depth of sin into which any one of us would not fall did not God's providence guard our steps. And thus it is no praise to us when we don't commit heinous sins. Rather, it is a praise to God that he shelters his people under the wings of his grace. Finally, the title of Psalm 54, part of which we read as our reading from the psalm this morning, 
refers that psalm to this occasion. David cries out, Save me, O God, by your name, and judge me by your strength. The danger he seeks saving from comes from strangers that have risen up against him and from foes who seek his soul, men whom, as he says, have not set God before them. To be saved by God's name means to be saved through attributes that are distinctly divine. In other words, to be saved by that by which God makes himself known. To be judged by God's strength means to be vindicated as one who is under God's favor and protection. This is clearly the psalm of one whose hand has been strengthened in God. These petitions are such as David might well have made after his conversation with Jonathan. The great central truth of Psalm 54 is, God is my helper, the Lord is with them who, like Jonathan, uphold my soul. And then comes in a happy statement of trust in the Lord. He has delivered me out of all my troubles. You see what I mean? God's faithfulness in the past should ensure us of God's faithfulness in the future. It greatly glorifies God when His children hold fast to His faithfulness amid their trials instead of acting as if in each new hardship there's a chance that God's going to fall on His face. Here's David in the wilderness of Judah amid a life of hardship and exposure with a powerful king breathing out slaughter against him. And he can say of God, he has delivered me out of all my troubles. This is the faith that moves mountains, the faith that works so wonderfully when a lad with a sling and stones went out bravely against the giant. You see what wonders faith can do when it gets clear of all the entanglements of carnal feelings and stands firm on the promises of God? Do you see how infinitely such faith would relieve us and sustain us in the common troubles and anxieties of life? That short phrase depicts the true quality and the highest attainments of simple faith. He has delivered me out of all my troubles. Let us pray.